Welcome once again to Westside Unscripted. This is the podcast where pastors loosen their ties, throw away their notes, and answer questions about all things theology and culture. I'm a deacon here at Westside. My name is Josh Bartels, and I am not joined, as usual, by Pastor Peter Montoro because we have opted to publish a recording of our members' meeting Q&A from this last Sunday night. So this is a collection of questions that were asked publicly at our uh, members' meeting about the Bible and about culture, and we are going to publish those here for you. So if you were there, you heard them and perhaps even asked some of them. Uh, if you weren't there, though, this is an opportunity for you to catch up on some of the answers that Pastor Peter gave to some of the members' questions uh, this past Sunday night at the members' meeting. So I hope you enjoy this. He did not have notes, he was not wearing a tie, and he did answer questions about all things theology and culture. So this is right up the podcast alley. Thanks again for listening, and uh, God willing, we'll be back with you next week for usual programming. We are going to do a Q&A, uh, and so any questions you have about the Bible, about theology, about culture, uh, about church life, those sorts of questions. If you have questions about sports, you will find me singularly uninformed and uninformative. Um, but if you have questions about the Bible, hopefully I'll do the best that I can. Um, and so, who will be first? Brother Chad. So in <clears throat> 2 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel um, 24? 2 Samuel 24. Okay. Verse 1, the ang- again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. And then we know the rest of the story. He numbers them. Joab tells him he's crazy. They get numbered, and God judges them. There's a parallel passage in First Chronicles of 21, and it says Satan moved David to do this. Um, kind of, I just kind of want some insight from you. What do you... You ask a hard question. <laughs> I knew where you were going as soon as you mentioned 2 Samuel 24. <laughs> it's certainly something I would like to dive into more deeply, but I'm not confident that I would get a better answer than the one that I'm going to give you, and that is that even Satan is under God's control, um, and he, does not, he cannot act. You know, we have that in the, in the book of Job, that he doesn't act without God's authorization. Um, and yet it's clear, even in the book of Job, that he's a malevolent force. He's desiring evil and not good. Um, and yet he is in some way, some mysterious way, under God's providential control. Um, and so, you know, why God is testing David at this point, that is, that to me is, so that God uses the devil to test David is maybe less of a question because we just know that God does that and ultimately it goes to God's will. We can't answer that. But why God is testing David at just this point, um, other than, you know, why God is, you know, the text leaves a lot of things. So those are some of the things that I think maybe a much more close, you know, a very detailed study of 2 Samuel could reveal, you know, is there something in the text that answers that question? You know, so that, you know, so, so, so the, the first question, you know, you know, God just uses Satan. That's all we can say about it. But why, why is God doing that at this point? It may be that that's also, we just don't know, but we have to trust God. Um, but it could be there's something in the text that would shed some light on that. So I am hoping one of these days, maybe on a Sunday night, to be able to, there's a lot of uh, really cool stuff in the structuring of, of Samuel and Kings and that, that sort of broad narrative. So that's one of the things that I have under consideration at some point, uh, probably in a Sunday night setting. It's probably not the next thing. I think we're going to do Isaiah next. 
but at some point I want to tackle like a big chunk of narrative like that. And um, those will be some of the, you know, those are the questions that come up. And so that's an opportunity to really wrestle with it and see if anyone has discovered something that would shed in light on that. That's a good question to start out with. Zachary. Why is Leviticus called what it is? The book of Leviticus from the Bible? Um, because I, should, I knew I should have brought my Septuagint as well. Um, so in the Hebrew Bible, Leviticus is called Vayikra, which is, and he called, which is the beginning of the book. So Hebrew book titles um, tend to follow uh, the first word. So the book of Genesis is called Bereshit in the beginning. Uh, because that's the beginning of the book. It starts with Bereshit. Uh, and Vayikra is how the book of Leviticus starts. Um, but Leviticus, the, Levit, most of our English book titles uh, come not from the Hebrew, but through the Latin Vulgate via the Greek, via the, the, the old Greek translation. Um, and I am about 90% certain this is the case. I would want to double check before you quote me on it. Uh, but... Uh, it comes from the, the I'm, I'm almost certain that it's going to come from the Latin via the Greek because that's typically the case for English book titles. But the reason it's called Leviticus is because it gives a lot of details about the duties of the Levites. Um, and so whereas the Hebrew book titles typically come from the first line of the book, the, the Greek book titles typically come from uh, what the Greek translators thought the book was about. Um, and so they thought it was about the duties of the Levites. There's actually, Leviticus is this, it, wonderfully mysterious. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. I just love the book of Leviticus. Um, uh, and there's, there's a lot of really cool stuff in it. But it also contains the duties of the Levites. And, and so that likely is why it is called that. I don't know if we would know for certain, but that would be a plausible explanation of it. Uh, so my question is about Psalm 82 um, and about the, the council of God uh, when he's sitting there in the council of uh, uh, the gods, and it kind of talks about that. And uh, I'm just curious as to. And uh, <laughs> my question is, uh, uh, what's what exactly is uh, going on there, and uh, kind of how do you understand that text, and does that differ, or because I know uh, Michael Heiser is a pretty popular person at the at the moment, and I'm curious as to what your thoughts on that. So Psalm 82, it's a brief psalm, so just for the benefit of everyone, I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. Of course, there's a discussion about how, how that term should be translated. Um, how long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked, Selah? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Um, you know, as you know uh, from, from the, you know, what you referenced, this is something that uh, good people are going to disagree on how to read this one. Um, Jesus actually quotes this in John, I think it's in John 8 maybe, but it's in his, either John 6, John 8, about there in the Gospel of John, um, where he says, you know, if he called them gods unto whom the word of the Lord came, you know, how are you saying that I am blaspheming by saying that I am the son of God? So Jesus picks it up in that way. And 
this is the sort of thing that I, you know, one could change one's mind on and then change it back again uh, because there's sort of arguments different way. So Heiser's view is that basically this is portraying the divine council and the God should be seen as the, the sons of God in terms of angels. Um, so these are angelic powers in some sense. Um, the other view, which I probably would incline to based on my reading of um, my understanding of what Je- the point that Jesus makes uh, based on the passage uh, would be that um, another explanation of the sons of God uh, would be human rulers. Um, and it seems like that human rulers, but potentially with the divine, you know, so you have that in Daniel where you have Michael, the prince of um, the prince of the children of Israel, and then you have uh, the prince of Persia that it, Michael is fighting against. So you have this hint. It is not a fully developed system, but you have a hint in the scriptures that behind human kings are angelic powers, both good and evil. Um, and so, and yet at the same time, one of the things that pushes me towards the human king's view of that uh, is that judging the fatherless is what human kings are called to do, human rulers are called to do. Um, and so I wouldn't want to exclude a possible referent to some angelic powers, but it seems like the focus is on human kings who think they are more than they are and fail to do what they're called to do. Um, so they're supposed to judge the fatherless, but they think they are too good and too important for that. And God says, you know, you think you're too important to take care of the powerless, but I'm going to make you die like ordinary mortals. You'll realize you had no power at all except the power that I gave you. So in terms of an overall view of what the main point of it is, I think we've got to come back to that because you know, judging the fatherless is something that's given to human rulers to do. You know, providing for the weak and the powerless and defending them. Um, and so exactly how strong that accent is um, to, the, you know, to the idea of, of angelic powers behind human powers, um, that, that's the one where it's really sort of dicey. But the overall point of the psalm, that basically, you know, those who abandon their responsibilities because they think they're too important for them are going to be judged by God. And that's the overall point. And then that has application for us as well, that you know, if you're a father and you get so hung up on the authority God's given you over your household that you're no longer using that authority for the purposes that God gave it to you, then God is going to judge you for that and potentially even take that authority away from you. And the same thing would apply to a pastor or to a, you know, to a ruler. Obviously, we've seen that you know, when rulers go off the grid and, and think that they, they are, they, they're going to take God's place and they fail to do what they've been called to do, uh, then they stand under God's judgment. Um, and so I think that application remains the same, regardless of um, exactly how we get into some of the stuff that, that Heiser gets into uh, in his treatment on that. So I have a question. It's been asked to me before when uh, people are curious about my faith and I've been witnessing to them. So obviously Adam and Eve committed the first sin of man, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, more specifically Eve. But well, tempt- I, think, I think the scripture says Eve, Eve was deceived, but the first sin is, at, the sin is Adam's. Right, right. But uh, they were tempted by the devil. The devil ultimately, in a sense, committed the first sin, period, because he questioned God. Iniquity, iniquity was found in him. So therefore, before the devil and before sin was iniquity, God created everything and said it was very good. If that was the case, then why did iniquity exist and how did it come to be? That is not a question that I think the scriptures answer. So the scriptures tell us about the origin of human sin. Mm -hmm. I don't think the scriptures answer the question of the origin of human evil. Now, there's been a long, since the time of origin, who sort of pieced together the things that are talked about the Prince of Babylon. So you have that Prince of Babylon passage, uh, you have a passage in Ezekiel, and then a passage in Isaiah that are initially addressing human rulers, 
but seem to be, and this gets to your question as well, seem to be pointing to supernatural powers that lie behind those human rulers. Right. But in their context, they're not intending to answer the question of the origin of human evil. They're simply assuming the existence of evil and warning specific human rulers that their pride and their hubris is going to lead to a fall. Um, and so with that, I think it gives hints at pride as, as the origin of, of Satan's fall. But scripture never really says, we're going to address this question, we're going to tell you. So I really think uh, at a meta level, the origin of evil is one of those secret things that belong to God to know and not to us. Um, mm-hmm. And that what scripture reveals to us is the origin of human sin uh, and what it looks, you know, the fact that we all sit in Adam. And of course, Paul is very clear on that in Romans 5. Um, and so human sinfulness is explained. The origin of Satan's quarrel with God is really not ever explained. It's hinted at. Um, and, and, you know, Christians are going to disagree. You know, different, you know, Bible interpreters will, will, will have different viewpoints onto exactly how much we can learn from those passages. I think it's Ezekiel 26 and Isaiah 14, maybe. Um, right. You know, we'll have a different views on how much we can learn from that. But ultimately, we're not, we're not given a direct passage that says, I'm going to answer this question in the way that, say, Romans 5 answers the question of why are humans sinful? Well, when people have asked me that question, I've kind of redirected their question when they've asked me about this, and I've said, well, God's whole goal of making us is so that he can be worshipped and glorified and have a personal relationship with his creation. So he gave us free will, the choice to choose yes or no. And the existence of evil in the world, although not directly created by him, it adds as a way to strengthen those who do serve him for better yeah, discipleship. Yeah, you know, it, it gets into some questions that we, you know, we can't, ultimately, can't ultimately answer, and that gets into some you know, different philosophical perspectives. But I think really you right. know, we have to, you know, especially people who are outside the faith, we need mm-hmm. to redirect them to, regardless of where sin came from, you are a sinner, and you stand guilty before God, and what are you going to do about that? Um, and then you know, we, can, we can deal with the philosophical things maybe right. a bit later on. There's a time and a place for saying certain things, and obviously you want to lead them right yep. to the core. Mm-hmm. I get that. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you. Gil? So in the book of Genesis, twice Abraham asks his wife to pretend she's his sister. Uh, once with Abimelech, and I think once with Pharaoh, yep. if I remember mm-hmm. right. And then once Isaac does the same thing. Yep. Also with Abimelech. I don't know if that's the same. A different Abimelech, Abimelech but yeah. Or his son, maybe. Um, but... I'm curious, is there anything more going on there that's helpful to us other than these men being selfish for their own safety and foolish with the safety of their wives? And uh, the detail that, at least in one, and I think a few of the circumstances, they were given gifts and blessed despite this foolishness, um, partially as tokens of the innocence of the parties um, that really had to do that because of the um, deceit in the first place. So is there something more going on there? It seems like it takes up a decent portion. Yeah, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot there going on. Um, and I wrote some details about this in the notes on Genesis. I'm going to try to remember what I wrote. Because um, I spent a long time thinking about it at that point. But what's interesting is you do have a pattern. So in, you have first you have Sarah with Pharaoh. And it's interesting, with Pharaoh, it is not said that Pharaoh was withheld from touching Sarah. So 
it is left very, it does not say explicitly that Pharaoh had relations with Sarah, but it is not said that he didn't. With Abimelech, we have this elaborate story that makes it very plain that Abimelech did not. So there's a plague on all of Abimelech's house. He doesn't touch Sarah. So we have this emphasis that there's no, no touching of Sarah that takes place, which of course is very significant because that's right before the birth of Isaac. Um, and so you have this open question that God has promised that the seed is going to come. So you have this sort of drama that you have this strategy he does with Pharaoh and he seems to get away with it and he seems to, be ble- you know, seems to get treasures from it. He also picks up Hagar in Egypt. So Hagar is an Egyptian servant. So it's likely that Hagar is one of the rewards from Pharaoh, which kind of backfires and creates a lot of problems. So you have this strategy of not trusting God that seems to work out well and actually has a lot of long-term destructive effects on their relationship and on the promises of God. Um, And then he tries the same thing again uh, after God has given him all of these promises. And it's interesting, um, the language he uses when when he's talking about, um, when he's talking to Abimelech, he seems to almost slip into polytheistic language. So it really seems like this is after the covenant, this is after all the promises, and really if you pay very close attention to the language, it seems to be Abraham's lowest point. Um, So God has made this tremendous promise to him. God has given the covenant. Sarah is about to have a child, and Abraham falls flat on his face really, really hard. And God preserves the seed of promise, but you you may wonder why you have this story about Abraham and Isaac a few years later. Well, it's because God gave him the promise like he did, but Abraham had completely and totally failed. And so the testing with Isaac then is an opportunity for Abraham to reestablish not only before God, but to himself, that he was going to trust God this time. Um, And so you have that kind of drama that's taking place in the life of Abraham. Um, And then of course, it's interesting, that same sequence of, you know, totally ambiguous situation. She goes into Pharaoh's house, we don't know what happens to her. Then a very explicitly, you know, as, as explicit as possible, he has no relations with Sarah. Then when we get to, Abra- when we get to Isaac and uh, Rebecca, um, he, she doesn't go into his house at all. So it's a different, it's a different situation. Um, and you have another, so, so you still have that element that you have like a, you have that thread where it's, it's, chain, you know, it's, it's shifting, where the women are getting farther and farther away from the Gentile men. Um, then you have another layer to that, that Abraham is afraid of Pharaoh But then Abraham is afraid of Abimelech, and Abimelech is someone who actually fears God. So he treats all the outsiders as though they're the same as the lustful, evil Pharaoh. And in fact, they're not the same as the lustful, evil Pharaoh. Um, And so you have this interaction of his different interactions with Gentiles that he assumes they're all the same, and they are, in fact, not all the same. Um, And so you have that element going on. (laughs) Back in Pharaoh, you also have a pre-capitulation of the Exodus, um, where he goes down to Egypt, his wife is enslaved, he comes out with a bunch of stuff. What's that remind you of? The Exodus, right? So you have a prefiguring of the Exodus taking place at this same time. Um, yeah, so you've got a lot of narrative threads going on. Exactly why this element, I think probably if I were to pick the single dominant sort of thread, it would be that one of the things you have in Exodus, uh, in Genesis, is every single conceivable thing that could happen to keep the seed from coming to fruition uh, happens. So my wife gets kidnapped and taken into you know, a pagan king's house. Like, that would ever happen. Well, it did happen, and God still preserved 
a, a faithful seed and it's made clear. Uh, it, you know, it happens twice and he still preserves you know, the seed to Abraham. And so I think that's, that. that's the main point. And then you have all these secondary, secondary echoes that are being worked through this story. Um, and and there's, a, there's this you know, motif of these different things that, that get picked up. So I think Philip, you were next and then Janine and Grace. My question was about 1 Samuel 28. Uh, Saul and the medium of Endor, Samuel died. He goes to a medium to commune with Saul's ghost. What, what exactly is happening? Did, did the soul of a deceased person come back in phantom form or was something else going on? Well, one of the interesting things is that the witch herself is terrified. So it would seem that she ordinarily is communicating with demons because there's no evidence in scripture that, you know, Demons have the ability to conjure ghosts from wherever, you know, from, from the intermediate state. But it surely appears, you know, because Samuel has a word for the Lord that takes place. So it seems like, you know, uh, this is one of those cases where God can use whatever means he wants. And so he sends Samuel back. So it's clear that the witch is as terrified as Samuel, you know, as Saul is, that this is not what she expected to happen. Um, so this is not what normally took place. She normally was doing conjuring tricks with demons, and now Samuel actually shows up. And this is, you know, terrifying to her and everyone else around them. Um, so it seems like God, you know, chooses to act in this really broken, awful situation where he just breaks through and decides to show up. Um, so I, that's, that's how I would read it. Grace? So mine isn't a, so mine isn't a Bible question. Bible verse, it's about church membership and church life. So what would you say to some the new people? I mean, there's some a lot of new people and then old, older people that have been here for a while. Like if there's um, you have talents or you want to be used in different ministries, what would you say to the those people who are interested or could possibly be interested in doing a ministry like the ministries that are available, and what are the qualifications to Yeah, well, I mean, so ministry, you know, ministry is going to be based on, um, you know, basically three things. It's gonna be based on uh, what, uh, what ministries we have going on. It's gonna be based on what capabilities someone has, and then uh, how much, you know, we have found them to be trustworthy and worthy of that responsibility. So, you know, the more something is a role that's a leadership role, then the longer it's going to take to reach that. So, you know, you, you come and you're here for three months and you're like, I wanna be a deacon. Well, you have to be here a year before you can be voted on as a deacon, right? Um, so the more responsible a position is, the more you need to be tested before you can step into that position. Another aspect of that is obviously dealing with children. Um, anything dealing with children, we require six months, you know, to be able to do that. Um, and so there's, there's one element that is basically how well do we know you? And of course, if you come only on Sunday mornings and leave as soon as the service is over, you could be here years and we don't know you well enough to put you in a position of leadership. Um, if you come Sunday morning, Sunday night, you're part of neighborhood fellowships. I think this was an example with the Spains. You know, Brother Silas was here like a year exactly and he came on as a deacon and because they had, uh, even though they were only here for a short time with the Navy, because they had plugged in with both feet, uh, we were, fully, you know, we were fully confident that Brother Silas was qualified and would be a wonderful choice to be a deacon, and uh, that confidence has not been misplaced, uh, and, and Brother Silas has done a wonderful job as a deacon. Um, and so, 
you know, so basically, the more opportunities you give us to get to know you, um, then the more we'll know whether we can trust you or not. So that's sort of the one element. Um, the other is what do we have that needs to be done? Uh, and so we have uh, different ministries that we have. Um, I won't give, give a summary of all of that, but we have different ministry roles, different things that need to be done. Uh, and of course, so then we want to match up people's gifts with what needs to be done. And then, of course, we're not limited to the ministries we already have. If and, but it's sort of like you have to be tested, right? So if you have a grand idea for this new ministry that we've never done before, and you have no involvement in any ministry that we already have, then we're not gonna say, go for it and do it. You have to be tested with what we already have, and then you know, we'll know that you actually will follow through on what you've committed to do. And then we can say, okay, you know, let's start something new at that point, because we want anything that we start to be able to keep going. Uh, and if we don't know that we can depend on you to do it, then that means that we are maybe going to have to be asking other people to do it. So that element of you know, getting your feet wet, putting the time in, <laughs> sort of earning your stripes, as it were, if you want to start a new ministry and you have skills. Uh, but once you've done that, we don't just want to be like, we only do the ministries that the pastors have come up with. We really want people, you know, we want to, we want our ministries to be shaped uh, by the members uh, that we have and by the gifts that God has given them. So we're open both to not doing things we've done in the past because we no longer have those who have the gift and calling to do them um, and also doing things we haven't done in the past because God has sent us those who can do them. Um, and so we really, you know, basically, I mean, the answer is, you know, talk to us about what, you know, what the, you, how you believe the Lord has gifted us. Um, show up to all the services uh, so that we have a chance to get to know you and then be willing to be willing to be tested and do the, the boring, ordinary stuff uh, because that's how, you know, you're proven to be able to do the things that maybe you might have a deeper desire to do. Carson. So my next question is kind of a two-part question. The Bible talks about every man is appointed unto death, correct? Yeah, is appointed a man once to die, but after that, the judgment. Correct. I'm a layman's term type of person, so forgive me if I don't quote it exactly. Oh, no, no, of course. Um, the Bible talks about in the book of Revelation two witnesses that the Lord will leave to his people because he never leaves the world without a witness. Given that every man is appointed unto death, I've always assumed that these two witnesses in end times would be Enoch and uh, I believe it's Elijah, the two people in the Bible that never died. Is there any indication in the Bible that those are going to be the two witnesses? Hmm. It doesn't tell us who the two witnesses are. Correct. But those are the two people that never died in the Bible. Yes. I, I think in order to answer that question, it would require setting up a whole framework of conversation to even how to think about that, that it might extend past the time that we would have. So I think that's right. a broader question that I can tackle. So I, don't, so I don't think we necessarily know who those two witnesses are, but there's a broader question of, should we see them as individuals at all? Should we see them as symbolic of entities, right? So there's a whole, there's right. like a whole, there's a whole broader framework before we can even get to, should we even be thinking of two particular individuals? Um, and then that, that I think would exceed the time that we'd have to get into. Well, the second part of my question was, given this information in mind, what about the rapture when he comes to the cloud and calls his elect? Does that also, every man is appointed unto death when he calls his elect, I don't picture it as our hearts giving out and us dying necessarily. I mean, is there anything in the Bible that indicates that that is the case? Because it appears to me that it's the calling back of the souls of the elect, of his chosen ones. Yeah. Um, you know, again, that's a much broader question, probably. Um, 
So I don't, I so just, I so I, I know this is something that Christians, even many of, of us here, would have different positions on. Mm-hmm. I don't think the scripture teaches a secret rapture that is separate from the return of Christ. I think what the, the passages that speak about the return of Christ right. all speak about a single return of Christ of at course. the end. Um, and so believers are caught up to be with the Lord, but they're with the Lord, and it's the, the sound of the great trumpet. Um, and of course, many, many Christians believe in a secret rapture followed by a seven-year tribulation and then a, a second return of the Lord. Um, so that's one way of looking at it. Um, but I wouldn't, wouldn't yeah. see it that way. I personally am a post-tribulation uh, pre-wrath mm-hmm. I believe yeah. one, like, like I said, one. there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of complicated things that you'd have to set up whole frameworks of discussion, and so really getting into the details on that would be um, maybe outside the time that we'd have tonight. Um, right. So you'd have to, in order to profitably answer the questions you're asking, you'd have to discuss a whole lot of things first. Um, so yeah, any other briefer questions that we can tackle, <laughs> Brother Tanaka. Uh, We'll probably cover this in uh, Colossians uh, 1.24. It says, uh, filling, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. What is Paul getting to on that? Let's see. So, let's see, where does the passage start? I'll just start in verse 23 and read through verse 25 for the benefit of everyone. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you, to fulfill the word of um, God. And what you mentioned lacking is, is what the King James has translated, to fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake. And it really is a great mystery, but I think it, it comes to the idea that uh, Peter talks about this, and, and really Paul talks about this repeatedly, that as we participate in Christ's crucifixion, so we'll participate in his resurrection. So there's an idea that now in this time in between, we are under the cross. And we're not participating in his redemptive sacrifice, but we are following in his steps. And those steps are steps of suffering. And so Paul is saying that he's following in the steps. We talked about this this morning, that Christ is suffering for the sake of the church, right? So Christ suffered for the sake of the church. And of course, he suffered to redeem the church. Paul isn't suffering as though his suffering was going to be salvific, but he is suffering to see Christ received the reward of his sufferings. So there's a, there's a connection between his suffering and Christ's suffering. And so exactly what he means to fill up that which is lacking, I, those details, I'd want to really dig into the Greek and, and figure out exactly how that should be translated um, and, and how it should be understood. But I think the broader concept we should, we should see that in is that idea that we're following in the footsteps of Christ. Um, and since he gave himself for the church, we should give ourselves for the church as well. And, and Paul gave himself not just for the church in some generic entity, but to see particular local congregations established and to flourish. Um, and therefore, that was what he was calling on the Colossians to do in Colossae and the Ephesians to do in Ephesians, in Ephesus rather, uh, and, and each of the other, the Philippians to do in Philippi. And so that then should be how we live our lives, that we should be willing to suffer in order to see churches established, not just someplace, but in particular places. And that really, to me, that's one of the things that inspires me 
about having a church in Bremerton is that, you know, Bremerton and Washington State is no longer, you know, in America, the politically most uh, um, uh, friendly area to have a Christian church. But Paul didn't go to politically friendly areas only. Paul thought there didn't need to just be this head church in Jerusalem or this head church in some safe place. Paul went to places where he wasn't welcome, where the gospel wasn't welcome, and he established churches there that he wanted to bear fruit in those places. So this is idea that the, 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 the church for which Christ died needs to be established in as many places as possible so that if we allow a church that was established to be quenched and that light to be taken somewhere else, then that's a reverse for the gospel in a way that experiencing persecution is not a reverse for the gospel. So while you know there are times where you're forced out of a town. There were times in Paul's life where he was forced out of a town or wasn't able to establish a church. There still is that heart that desires to see, is there any possibility at all that we can establish a functioning church in this place? And if so, persecution or no persecution, friendliness or no friendliness, we should go for it. Um, And of course, that doesn't reveal what God's will is for each individual member of that church, but it does show that that is a worthy thing to which one could give one's life and and something that Christians as a whole are called to do. And so there is a a value and a virtue, not just to having churches in friendly places, but to having churches in unfriendly places uh, as well. And I think that's even the suffering that 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 entails is something that Paul celebrates. And so it's something that we should celebrate as well. One or two more. Brother Don? So in regards to the uh, power behind the human power, kind of going back a little bit, Okay. Uh, Daniel talks about that when he prayed and mm-hmm. he was dispatched in 21 days and he was doing battle. So can you maybe elaborate on, I guess it seems that there's a, there's a power behind nations or certain nations, or at least that is something implied. Could you kind of elaborate on maybe what, what's going on there? Yeah, I don't know if that much is revealed to us about it, but we do have this sense of, you know, so we have this sort of tension, right? That the powers that be are ordained of God. You know, so human government is ordained by God. And Paul says that of Nero, who is a wicked human ruler. So it's not just like righteous human rulers are ordained by God. So we sort of think righteous human rulers are ordained by God and wicked human rulers are, you know, set up by the devil. Um, So the devil claims that, you know, the power is given unto him but the devil we know to be a liar. So I'd always thought, well, you know, Jesus doesn't contradict him, uh, but Jesus does contradict what he, you know, Jesus does contradict his, <laughs> he, he refuses to go along with it. So he doesn't have to, you know, contradict every single thing he says, right? Um, and so certainly we do know the prince of the power of the air, though, there are passages that teach that, you know, there is a, a real ruling element that the, the rulers of this world have given themselves over to the prince of the power of the air, to Satan. Um, and so the God, of the, wor- the God of this world has a certain amount of real power, stolen dominion, as it were. Um, and so there is a dominion that's given by God, and there's a dominion that's stolen by the devil. Um, and so you have that tension, and I don't know if it's fully resolved, um, other than, you know, we should, we, should, we should be, you know, as the government... Um, does that which God has appointed it to do, it's fulfilling the ordinance of God. As it takes unto itself that which God has not given it, then it is surrendering to, you know, the destructive and disintegrating powers of, of, of Satan. Um, and so that then, I mean, the only way I can make sense of it is that that can be the case for the same ruler. So that then we can't just say, well, you followed Satan in this one area. I mean, Nero was a terrible, terrible ruler across the board. 
Um, and yet, you know, Paul's telling to the Romans, in these areas, you should be submitting to Nero. Um, and so, you know, so basically then we can't just declare we're going to absolve ourselves from allegiance to a ruler, uh, you know, across the board. But then we have to actually decide, is this what God would have, you know, is, you know, are they acting for God in this? Or are they acting for Satan in this? Um, and submit to the one and resist the other. And of course, then we must give ourselves to prayer as our greatest, you know, we, that's what we find Daniel doing uh, in, in Daniel as he's interacting with the, you know, with these angelic powers. They're coming to him as a result of continued prayer and fasting. And I think sometimes that, you know, given that these are things that we can't fully parse out in our minds and we don't know a lot of the relevant data, that sometimes we need to be giving ourselves to prayer rather than, you know, there's a time and a place for political action, uh, but we should, prayer should be a much, much bigger portion of our political action uh, than it often is. Um, so that when we have something where we don't know how to discern, that we really give ourselves to extended prayer and a patience in, in, in taking the time to try to discern, not just individually, but communally, how, how is it that we should respond to this? And that's what, you know, Paul, we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, that we're not striving to overthrow the political order necessarily, but we're striving to fight against those principalities and powers that often lie behind their evil deeds. Um, and to even by our very faithfulness as Christians to help pull them to representing God and not representing, you know, the stolen principality of, of Satan. So, you know, obviously <laughs> there's a lot about it we don't know, but that's sort of the really, I think, you know, the end is that we need to spend a lot of time in prayer to try to discern that um, and, and be hesitant to sort of be hasty in judgment <laughs> uh, and hasty in action that something crossed a trip line that we had set up and really devote ourselves to prayer and careful reflection um, so that we don't sin against God by engaging in rebellion um, or that we don't sin against God, you know, by submitting to something that would be rebellion against God. And so really trying to discern where that line is, you know, recognizing that it's sometimes going to be hard. Anyone who has not had a chance to ask a question yet as the last question have one more. Anyone who hasn't had a chance. All right, Gavin, you had your hand up. What do you have to say with, um, so in Daniel 5, it says, and Darius and me received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Um, most historical accounts talk about um, Cyrus the Great being the first uh, ruler of the Persian Empire. Mm -hmm. And now it doesn't he received the kingdom. I'm just wondering exactly what your thoughts would be on that. Um, yeah, it's a really tricky historiographical question. There are two or three possible resolutions that wouldn't go against the text of Daniel. Um, you know, there's a lot we don't know. When you have kingdoms get overthrown, it tends to lead to a disruption in the written records. So there really is not a lot of historiographical da data um, about what takes place there. So it's not like we've got this mountain of evidence that we know exactly what takes place, and then we're setting it against this, this element of scripture that seems to come in conflict with that. The whole period is very confusing. Um, and so the explanations that have been proposed uh, is that perhaps Cyrus had two different names. Perhaps Darius uh, is the one who takes the rule over the province of Babylon as opposed to the entire Persian Empire. Um, there's a couple others as well. So there's enough, you know, it's like often when we're dealing with, you know, supposed contradictions, we don't actually know, you know, there's no way we can answer every gotcha question that someone could raise. It's just easier to raise questions than to answer them. Um, but if we can show that there are multiple plausible, non-strained ways of, you know, it could have happened this way, it could have happened this way, um, then I think that's sufficient. 
even without being able to say, we know it happened this way, right? You know, so if you have, you know, two witnesses who are both testifying, you don't, and, and, and uh, you know, an accusation is made that, they, this is just general, you know, generally how history works, right? So you have two witnesses that you otherwise might know to be reliable, um, and yet they seem to be in some tension. The first thing to do is to try to see, is it possible that something we don't know could resolve this tension, right? Are they actually contradicting one another? Or is it just our ignorance is making it appear that they're contradicting one another? And if you know a witness to be generally reliable, then you give the benefit of the doubt. You know, it's only when there is no conceivable way that these two things could be true that you have to then question, well, which witness should we trust? Um, you know, is this reliable or is this reliable? And I think that's one of those settings where it's, it's more like, you know, that first, first approach that um, there's a lot we don't know and there are multiple plausible ways to resolve it, but sometimes we, we can say it could have happened this way, could have happened this way, but we actually don't have enough evidence at this point to be able to say we know it happened this way. Um, and that's one of the things that people do PhDs on. Um, it's why their scholars are still needed because new evidence is constantly being uncovered. And there are many questions that 100 years ago or 150 years ago, it was a could be this, could be this, could be this, that now can be much more decisively answered. Or new solutions that had never been thought of um, actually proved to be very, very persuasive. Um, and so that's why, you know, the work of research and, and, and learning on those sorts of questions is ongoing. Uh, and that's why, you know, the work should be done. Number one. Number two, we shouldn't place our confidence on a particular reconstruction because those can change. Um, and so that's both a, you know, both celebrating the value of it and recognizing the limitations that we don't place our faith ultimately in scholars and their ability to do their work that we, we recognize hopefully the value of it, at least uh, I do because that's some of the work that I do myself and I'm trying to do, uh, but I don't you know, no one should place their faith in my scholarly work. Um, you know, place confidence in it for what it is, but that's not what our faith is in. It's our faith is in Christ um, at the end of the day. And that brings us exactly to the end of our time.